Let's go. Hello, and welcome to Sustain Open Source Design. Is it Sustain Our Design? No, it's Sustain Open Source Design. Yes, yes. Sustain Open Source Design. SOS. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Sustain Open Source Design podcast, where we, a group of people, talk about sustaining open source software through the lens of design, user experience and beyond. This podcast grew out of the conversations that the Design and UX Working Group started at the Sustain Open Source Software Conference in early 2020 and continued throughout the subsequent year as we discovered the depth of topics around open source and design. You can find out more about the Design and UX Working Group on the sustainoss.org working groups page. Every episode, a handful of our hosts gather to speak to a guest. Our hosts today are Richard Latour. Hello, everyone. And myself, Errol Fox. Today, we have Jan Dietrich with us. Hello. Jan is a UX designer and researcher. They work at Wikimedia Germany and on their PhD about self-directed learning practices in anthropology. They have been involved in open source for over 10 years, mainly with design, but also some coding. 10 years is quite the track record. Can you tell us a bit about your journey through open source and some key points that stand out to you? Yeah, I think I started with being involved in open source projects with Mozilla's, gosh, what was that named? They had had a design corporation a long time back with the Mozilla Labs and they ran sort of student design sprints, something like that. And I participated in this. So this, I think, was my first contact with being involved in an open source project. So how did you get from there to where you are today? I continued the the work with Mozilla projects. At that time, they were quite interested in collaborations in UX. And I went on to study media arts and design at the Bauhaus University Weimar and There was a lot of freedom. It was modeled on arts, like fine arts studies. So we could basically choose what we want to do. And I was much interested in UX and UX research. So I looked into those topics and at some point started to set up a series of little projects, practical projects for students to learn UX design in and to make those more realistic and more interesting. I reached out to different open source organizations in the beginning, Mozilla, and then some people at Mozilla helped me to reach out to other organizations to collaborate with them. And this went on basically for, I think, three years. In the end, I also wrote my master's thesis about that collaboration and creating those classes. And yeah, I think in a parallel stream, more on the typical nerd journey in that sense. My dad was very much interested in computers and we liked to build them. That was, I guess, sort of some father-son activity. And you need to like have some reason to build computers. So we built some machines to say, okay, like now we can experiment, run Linux on it. That was before Ubuntu and it was still quite some complex 
So that was a good reason for us. And me and my dad played with that a bit. And yeah, thus I sort of kept being exposed to open source as a concept and using it also continued during my studies with some coding, using open source libraries and so on. So you did some projects with art students and design students around open source as a concept or using open source tools and methodologies. Can you kind of expand a little bit about what you did? Because I'm interested in how that went, if it was indeed with design students and maybe some of the things that that cropped up for you as challenges or with them. So open source in that classes was not very much in the foreground, but it came into being via the observation that I didn't want to support some company with sort of free student work, but I wanted it to be realistic. So my first idea, what about some projects that are related to an NGO or something like that? And Mozilla at that time, having had like some open source design outreach, was an obvious candidate then, and I continued with that collaboration. So this was the reason for doing it open source. I think I also mentioned open source tools or suggested students free and non-proprietary alternatives in the class, but it was not about open source, which is, I think, in the end, like it was a good move because if I would have like put that much in the foreground, it would have been more nerdy in the sense and the classes probably would have not attracted people with different backgrounds that much then. I understand. It's a tricky thing to balance with designers or basically you can categorize people as like non-technical, which is kind of a weird term to use because design is technical, but there is this sort of challenge with introducing open source to designers and how to introduce open source to designers through tools or through processes or through individual open source projects. And yeah, there is this question that a lot of us have who are designers in open source. How do we introduce it well to other designers without (laughs) turning them off of the whole idea? For me, it was basically emphasizing that there are those free tools that it makes a sense to use them, for example, because it's like not some try license that will expire or you paying a lot of money to some big company. And in that class, I'm open for people using those. Like the opposite that can also happen is, I don't know, somebody demands a, the use of a proprietary tool or file format for handing in your terms work. And I very much wanted to avoid something like that. But yeah, there were also people using proprietary tools and I did not forbid it because it was also not the central point. Rather, like what was mandatory is the topic that I kind of set with picking those collaboration partners from open source organizations. So you've mentioned a few times here, you know, nerdy, less nerdy. Oh, I didn't want to make it too much like that. I wanted to make it a bit easier for people. And these are really interesting distinctions because we're all technical. If you know how to tie your shoe, you've learned a technical skill, which a monkey can't do. It's something that humans are really good at. And so where do we draw the line is an arbitrary distinction, which is made culturally. 
And that those cultural distinctions lead to some people being like, oh, I fit in this camp, but not in that camp, which leads to these weird divisions that we have. And you know a lot about this. And I say you know a lot about this because you're doing a PhD in anthropology. Can you talk a bit about how that works and what you're doing there? So my PhD's work is actually not that closely connected to open source and the tech culture in that sense. But yeah, working in that field, volunteering at open source design, I'm, I get a lot of exposure to, let's say, tech culture. And I also keep reading anthropology readings about that. So maybe first the PhD in as a particular topic, and then I could tell a bit about that distinction and, and nerd culture. So for the PhD, I'm looking at how people self-educate themselves using recipes and instructions by comparing people who do that with cooking recipes and with instructions for learning to program. I was attracted to the topic because, and that is also particularly sort of nerdy or a tech culture trope, like this idea of educating myself with materials. And there's also this point sometimes that it's particularly with recipes, it's frowned upon, even in nerd culture. Like it's not just following a recipe, like you must do something else. A method is far better, like recipes, not so cool. And the interesting point is that to interpret a recipe correctly, there needs to be a lot of work done, a lot of interpretation, a lot of guesswork. And it also depends a lot on your environment. For example, a simple recipe for I don't know, making pancakes might not work in a kitchen in another culture with another infrastructure. So if in recipes, like you have something like bringing to a boil or put it on the highest setting, whatever, this is all sort of technologically inscribed things in the environment that you can sort of base your actions on and that partly guide them. And this I found very much interesting. Like how is that idea of this self-standing independent education that you could view it as connected to all those relations with the environment, with other people, with cultural history, and also how does become that work visible. One obvious thing is people make notes and annotations and recipes, which is very interesting. I really like that because to me, that's all design work and that's very open sourcey. Do you follow the instructions for install or do you try to fix them? I mean, the amount of extra information you have to know as a developer before going into any project, it's never all written down, especially things like governance or codes of conduct or how to get involved as a designer. Who do you talk to make designs if you want to? That stuff is always, oh, yeah, I was going to write that down last August. You know, and it's like, oh, it's, it's not there anymore. So I'm really resonating what you're saying, even though you do say, it's not really relevant to open source. To me, this is all the same bucket. Yeah, I think it becomes relevant to open source when looking specifically as how such instructions are utilized in open source projects. As you have the problem and the opportunity to work with people with whom you're not co-located in many cases. And then it becomes a very interesting challenge how different people's behaviors work together resonate with each other and it's pretty tricky to create this and instructions are a part of that but also as probably most people know who want to get started 
there is a lot of implicit culture, a lot of implicit knowledge that you need to know. Also, which behaviors are okay, which are not okay. And this is very often not written down or can't be written down or would actually be a taboo to write it down because people wouldn't like to hear themselves being in that project, what their rules might be, particularly in regards to exclusionary practices. And all that then also builds upon a particular mode of technology and of education. Literacy is very important, both in reading, writing, performing that you're a clever person in open source projects and so on. Oh, this hits home like really hard because I've had those feelings. I've had those feelings as a designer, like, am I smart enough to be in this open source project? How do I follow a set of rules to engage? Is there a set of rules to engage? And I'm really curious to hear you talk more about your work and investigation into open source culture and UX design culture and design culture specifically as our listeners would be interested in both of your rundowns of the two cultures and where they cross over. But also connected to that, I would love to hear whether there is a globalized design culture as well, because there's this understanding that there's maybe an open source culture per project or a design culture per kind of design school, if you know what I mean, like maybe minimalism or Bauhaus or all these kinds of different things. But there's lots of culture within design that is removed from the, let's call it primary table of conversation, more traditional design practices. So yeah, please tell us about the cultural overlaps and your work here. For my work personally, the overlaps for me are created by being active in both fields somewhat. I work as a UX designer, UX researcher with an interest in open source design, working for an organization that produces open source software. And I also worked quite a bit with developers. Somebody will build those things, hopefully. And then at least two different disciplines need to communicate to designer and to developer. Sometimes I can write a bit of code myself, but in many cases, I can't. And I never did any formal research in that area, but from personal experience and literature review, I can say there are quite some overlaps. Both disciplines are very modern in that sense, that they are like bound on industrialization and digitalization. And they also have some crucial differences, particularly as how they see the relation between who creates and who consumes or uses. Yeah, the aspect that you talk about being involved in both aspects, like so the coding, the technical, again, using that word technical mean <laughs> in relation to coding is feels so natural to use it. And but it automatically suggests that I'm excluding it from the design side of things, which is not true. But doing some work in the coding space, doing some work in the design space, even though I also do that in my paid work and my volunteer open source work, as you were saying that there was a part of me from my design history that resisted against your statement, which was like, 
it kind of made me think of the same things that I was kind of told as a designer, like to be involved or to be regarded as equal in a way, you have to understand this kind of coding. You have to be able to read docs. You have to be able to do this. And there's something about that that really, as a designer, I get a bit kind of resistant. Why do I need to be like able to code? My skills are valuable without that, but it's about the communication aspect is what I'm hearing. It's about the relational connection, not so much about exactly your, maybe your quality of your code necessarily that you might be working on as a designer. But Yeah, I think what you feel is a concept or cultural idea that is, I think, widespread and open source. What counts is the code. And anything else is a secondary concern. I remember myself wanting to be involved in an open source project, which shall be unnamed here and getting the answer. Yeah, can you write a patch for this? There, my engagement with it ended. But yeah, it's not just some illusion that this culture exists of saying like what counts is the code and anything else like secondary. Do you think this is changing then? Do you think this culture is shifting? Like what have you noticed changing these 10 years of being involved in various different projects? I'm, I'm really curious to know as a fairly a newbie to open source, like I've only been hanging about for about three or four years. Good question. Like my strongest hypothesis would be that GitHub actually changed a lot. I'm not particularly fond of Git as a software. Like it's really hard to use. You notice that it's like made for Linux kernel development and the people involved in that. But as a platform, I think it had a standardizing aspect towards things that are helpful for designers, for example, that their issue tracker allowed easy copy pasting of images slash screenshots, that there is a clear license file. I don't know if they kind of also standardized code of conduct or no, they have this contribution MD, all those sort of things that might be known to people involved for a longer time, but that are really important if you're not deeply involved in that culture to get directed to some points that are helpful. And I think those are the positive aspects of GitHub in that regard. Also, probably is quite a business interest to get more people involved with the platform and so on. But I think that helped to legitimize this work. And then there are a lot of people trying to emphasize that there are different kinds of works that also need to be done and trying to push away from that idea that anything that is not code is a as a secondary question, people writing documentation, people doing design and so on. I also think that this has some influence on the larger culture. I kind of feel obliged to push back a bit because I don't think GitHub standardized the contributing MD or the license file. GitHub was a container for people to work together in the open that was very easy. I think their main novelty, their main differentiating factor was the patch PR system is way easier in GitHub than it used to be to actually patch something in the Linux kernel. Making a patch using the CLI using Git is really difficult for people, but making a PR is much easier. And that's actually a non-standard way of doing it in the Git culture, which GitHub decided to do. So that was one easy thing. And the other thing was the design. 
people want to spend time on it. And I think that was really influential. But the contributing and the license files, those are part of a much wider movement, which I feel came along and then GitHub's like, oh, we should be part of this too and let's suggest it to people. But that was GitHub, the company coming in after the fact. I think the groundwork was already there by the culture of people working together in public, which was enabled by GitHub. So they go together, but I wouldn't say that GitHub itself caused contributing MD to be a thing because I remember when it wasn't. I don't think they caused it. I think a big factor is if GitHub puts it in their interface, in their documentation, it becomes a much wider thing. It's a bit as if somebody like paves a path and then people as the standard thing they do, if they don't have a particular need to resist it and go in another direction, will walk along that path. And I guess this is the thing where GitHub had quite an influence. So I'm curious, you mentioned that Git is really useful for people who are doing low-level you know, systems design and with code, and I, I agree with that. You work a lot with recipes and methods with trying to figure out how people are working together. What do you think a better system might include, which would have designers be a first order citizen, which would have designers and people who do other non-code, non-quote technical and quote related work? I guess this is hard to say for the reason that a lot of what we name open source and open source culture is very much bound to that idea that code has primacy. It would in the sense be another thing, which doesn't mean that it couldn't develop in that direction. And one point would probably be having better tools there that support designers and this easily inserting an image in an issue tracker, I think is quite a big thing. It seems to be very small, but it totally shifts how you can work together. By now, there are also some tools like PanPod that start to offer quite well-designed tools for UI and UX design as open source tools. And this is also quite some progress. And I think what also is a barrier there is that it can be the case that people reject contributions if, for example, they are made with an standardized but closed source software and say that's not a legit thing. But it's pretty tricky where you draw the line. Do you also need an open source OS? Do you need to have an open source hardware and so on? I I get the sentiment, but the claim that there are sort of 100% good tools and 100% bad tools can't work. And designers focus on different things. And maybe if somebody like works all the time in, in Photoshop and exports that in a standard format, it probably should suffice, at least from a designer's perspective. The designer is not going to the devs and saying like, oh, you ought only to work with tools that have a graphical user interface and impose restrictions there. Like from the developer to the designer direction, it seems to be much plausible and it's much more often done. It's very interesting. I think just as a rule of thumb in your head, like could you do basically the same imposition of power in the other direction? And in many cases, you can't. Devs can tell designers how they want things in open source projects, but very rarely there's leverage to do it vice versa in the sense of like, it must be that way, that people are nice to each other and might go along 
that is another question. But that sort of shows the sometimes implicit hierarchies as well. There's so much here to dig into. The conversation about GitHub and the contributing starter file. (laughs) Still, my language is evolving in how I talk about open source, you can tell. But I remember one of the conversations we had as the design and UX working group in Sustain was what if there was a way of advocating for a designer contribution.md file when you start a new repo? Like, what would that look like? And how, as a cultural movement, more as open source design being lesser, I guess, I don't know, I'd love to hear your thoughts, Jan. Open source design at the moment feels more like we're doing as much culture shifting, conversation building, advocacy, educational work as much as we are trying to improve the tools we use like Pempot and then trying to figure out how we would actually do open source design contributions to Pempot is like, feels like it's quite far away from, I was just thinking as you were talking about Pempot, I was like, I'm really happy to use Pempot for my designs, but when will I be ready to contribute improvements to Pempot? But yeah, I'd love to hear some more about what you think the open source design movement is doing right now and where you sort of see it going in the future and and the different work that you do as well, actually, the balance. Yeah, I, I guess such a document that kind of helps design contributors would be really useful. I guess it also would be very close to the taboo territory in that there are some things that are very unlikely to change. And I guess this for me is usually the frustrating part when I find out that even for a contribution that from design side seems to be very small, very often you need to talk to a lot of people and then basically you need to understand, at least it feels that way, the whole project's history. And then some person back, 10 years ago, changed the UI toolkit to this, but then it also had some build script that only allows that and nobody wants to change it. So the button goes there. Yeah. So what seems like I simply want to move that button, like you need to understand the whole very local history of it, which is also curious, right? It's like a very global technologized, standardized movement. And then you hear like something on the level of the history of a village or something like when that person built their house there and dug a hole in the ground. And this is very much this experience. And I guess for such a file to be useful, it would need to be written in what people can work on. And that would clash with the idea of a lot of open source projects that everything is free for grabs, which it kind of is, but then totally not as well. This comes back to culture, I think, again, in the... As you were talking, I was reminded of one of my most recent mentoring experiences with a very new to open source designer telling me that, why is this thread about a really simple design issue that I started over 50 comments long? And I was like, ah, yes, that's open source. And it was like a very big culture shock to that designer to come up against this historical sense of what happened right at the beginning for those first developers that started the project. And that process of learning, having to really sort of virtually sit that designer down and say, this is maybe very unlike what you are used to in the design cultural world, where you get to kind of throw up some mock-ups on a dribble page or a portfolio page. And you really, 
it's an investment in the people that started the project and why and how. And yeah, it gets really deep really quickly, which is actually quite scary for designers in a lot of ways. Yeah, this is always something that amazed me and that I found kind of paradox and that can be also found in academic research on open source culture, that there's often the quote unquote front end that what is openly said about the culture is very often this standardized, code-based, it's about just about facts, just about code, just about algorithms. And then you are in those projects and there are so much things that people from outside that open source culture would clearly put in a, it's very social, it's very emotions-based bucket. It's a lot about having a long conversation and finding out what is right and what is wrong, having those fights, putting code and ideas to tests, a lot of flaming in many cases. And from the internal view, community members, at least in, in this research, argued that this is all needed to produce the code. So that is the ultimate cause. And thus, it's still about code. And that idea is not touched, that this is the primary resource but everybody looking at it from the outside could easily say, oh, what that culture is about is talking and having fights. Not in all projects, but I guess that could be a, a valid interpretation coming to it, not knowing that particular culture as sort of the imaginary anthropologist. There's so much. We haven't even really dug into usability and research side of design either. We sort of stayed very much in the space of image files, you know, that just speaks to the depth of conversations that need to be had across all levels. But sadly, we're running out of time. But Jan, I'd like to invite you to give us any final thoughts. How would you like to close out your last statements on your experience with open source design and open source? I think the best way I found it to summarize that the prototypical user and creator in open source should be one person that matches this idea. Like it's about empowered individuals who freely do work and uh, by free association work together, but have no sort of specific social obligations to each other. It's about scratching your own itch and then people will come in if it's good. It's a marketplace idea like the bazaar. And for the designer, it's very important in many cases that the creator in that way, the, the designer, the product manager, and the user to whom the thing they build is targeted are not the same person. And in UX design, it's again and again emphasized. You need to do research. It's not about you. It's about other people. And with that, it's very obvious that those two cultures clash. Is it one person like an open source or is the same person being user and creator actually a bad thing. And this very fundamental difference is between those two disciplines. And it's hard to overcome that. And I think we should stop particularly to try to solve that with educating the other side more in what is good about the other culture, but actually finding ways to put those different cultures to a good mode of working together and using each other's strength rather than pulling back and forth on people to get them into one camp, into 
believing that particular truth that it should be one way or the other. Where can people find more about you on the internet? Where can they follow you more of your thoughts? Do you have a Twitter account, et cetera? Yeah, on uh, Twitter, I go by the handle Simulo and I tweet there about open source design and science and technology studies, I guess. It's very mixed bag <laughs> in terms of topics. And I also write on HTTPS, colon slash slash for this dot de f o r d e s dot de we've got a lot of really amazing stuff to put in the show notes as well a link to some of the writing that you've done some of the articles that you've written and also i'm sure that we can pull in some of the talks that you've done you did a great talk at fostem just a couple of weeks ago that i thoroughly enjoyed the last thing that we'll do to wrap up is we have our Spotlight, where we talk about an open source project that we want to talk about more. Richard, would you like to go first? Sure. So I was reminded in this conversation of a really good time I had many years ago now in a cafe in San Francisco, sitting down with this PDF, which I had downloaded by John Weigley. I think you pronounce it W-I-E-G-L-E-Y. And it's called Get From The Bottom Up. And basically he wanted to understand Git more. And so he just sat down and Coded an implementation from the bottom up, not of the entire thing. It's a huge code base, but this was really useful for me for understanding how Git works and made me a whole lot less scared of it. So Git from the bottom up is a really great resource, which helped me out. Awesome. Sounds really cool. Mine is a lot less relevant to the last conversation. I have recently discovered how much I love Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, there's an open source project called Beyond 20, which integrates with various different things that you can use to play Dungeons and Dragons. And I've recently enabled it and enjoying it thoroughly and will be contributing some better design to it because some of the interactions are terrible. But still, check it out at Beyond 20 on the GitHub link that we'll put in the show notes. And Jan, what's your spotlight? The open source project I want to put a spotlight on is p5.js at js.org, which is a little JavaScript library for creative coding. And I think this is an aspect of open source and nerd culture that is often not that visible, but it has a long history of this connection to arts and using computers for aesthetic purposes. And it's also a very nice way into programming that is very much different than what is often imagined as what programmers do, because this is about drawing things on your screen, having fun with it, having little experiments and games. And I think this is an awesome software for doing that. Super cool. So with that, thank you so much for the conversation. We will have to have you back to talk more in depth about usability, research, and the evolving culture of open source and design. But with that, I'd ask my fellows to say a goodbye. Thank you so much. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye.